Welcome to the Miss Teacher Mom podcast, where we aim to encourage and equip moms to raise their kids with eternity in mind. Today I'm speaking to Dr. Al Moeller. He is the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, where my husband graduated in 2016. Dr. Moeller has two kids, three grandkids, and thousands of students who he ministers to every year. I'm excited to talk to him about missional motherhood in our secular culture, and I think that you'll be encouraged and helped and equipped to understand what we're up against and how we can fight for the souls of our children. Dr. Moeller, thank you so much for your time. Hey, I'm glad to do it. So we're going to talk about missional motherhood in a post-Christian culture. All right. In addition to your role as the president of the Southern Baptist Theological Seminary, you also minister to the public through your podcast, The Briefing, where you analyze world news from a Christian worldview. I'm afraid that many well-meaning Christian parents are unprepared for the challenges that we'll face as we raise children within our very secular culture. Can you help us understand what we're up against and what's at stake? Yes, uh, Caitlin, let me just give you the the bad news first, which is Mm -hmm that uh, our children and my grandchildren, uh, I'll just simply say, uh, they are never going to know a moment in which the culture around them is not going to be increasingly distant from Christianity and hostile to Christianity. Mm. And that is something that I don't think my parents could have envisioned when they were raising me as a young child. Uh, so I, I think that's that's shocking to people, and I think there's some Christians who who don't want to face that reality. But when you consider the fact that the culture around us is really under the control of people in Hollywood, New York, uh, Cambridge, Massachusetts, you know, elsewhere and, and beyond, and that uh, what what is missing now is is what used to be all the buffers in society to where when I was a kid, it really didn't matter what the faculty at Harvard thought. It matters a great deal now. And there are all kinds of reasons why. But uh, the, the worldview that is shaping the culture around us, and uh, especially around our children, is, is a worldview that is uh, antithetical to that of Christianity. Now, there's some overlay. And, and again, there, the, even in the most hostile secular culture, there are vestiges of grace. Uh, unfortunately, the worldview as a whole is subversive of, of, of grace, uh, not to mention all the other biblical virtues. Yeah, I recently listened to an Ask Pastor John about how can I protect my children from state indoctrination. And it was actually from a man in Sweden who's dealing with his inability to homeschool his children. And something Piper mentioned was how Americans are dealing with the same thing, but we don't know it. A lot of parents don't realize that we're in the same battle. And I think that's the danger that parents are in, that as you're saying, your parents couldn't even imagine that. But I also think parents like me who have young kids are not necessarily realizing how secular and anti-God our culture actually is and how that impacts raising our children. You know, Caitlin, one of the things we have to face is that the way culture works is that it creates the cloud around us in which we all work and live and play and breathe. And, uh, and we're not often uh, attentive to, to what's in that cloud. And uh, we, we better be. Let, let me just tell you a story from my own life. I was born in 1959, so ancient history, Eisenhower administration. Uh, my boyhood was in the 1960s in a very settled community. Christian parents uh, surrounded by Christian neighbors, and even if they weren't like faithful Christians in every sense in the local church, they thought of themselves as Christians, and and there was a shared morality. Mm. 
my public school teachers, I went to public schools. They, they, they were basically Sunday school teachers. And, uh, we, you know, so there, there was just no sense of distance. There was no sense of cultural alienation or, or hostility. But when uh, we got moved when I was 13 years old, I ended up with two atheist teachers in the public school. I'm 13 years old. I didn't know that there were such things. I didn't know that atheists existed, and now I've got two of them, and now I've got authority figures in my life who, who are atheists. And I knew I wasn't an atheist, and I, I didn't waver in my own uh, commitment to Christianity, but it did shift the ground entirely in a way that as a theologian I can now diagnose. And, and so to a 13-year-old, all of a sudden it appeared to me that, okay, so you're really choosing, am I a Christian believer or am I an atheist? And, and then, how, do you, are you mean to atheists? No, you got to be nice to atheists. After all, I was trained to be respectful of authority. I got two teachers who are atheists. And, and so my parents were really not too aware of this, but in my heart, there's this all this like, how, how, do I, how do I treat this? And by the way, the teacher is very friendly to me, although very antagonistic to Christianity. How do I put that together? Well, but that was, that was unusual when I was 13. It's the norm now. Mm-hmm. And what we have is a giant culture conformity system that is largely under the entire control of, of, of those who are holding to an adamantly secular worldview. And by the way, they don't really mind a little bit of religion. And that's why a lot of Christians and, and Christian parents miss this, because they really don't mind liberal Protestantism, because after all, it's just in agreement with them. It just has some smells and bells and an altar. They're, they're not opposed to New Age spirituality, because there are no truth claims there. There's no definition of marriage as a man and a woman. And so it's actually what we believe, authentic biblical Christianity with strong doctrinal truth claims. That's what's unacceptable. And I think most most parents just don't understand that just about every mainstream cultural product that comes in their house now comes with that messaging right down to the pictures on the cereal box. Yeah, you're right. And before having kiddos and becoming a stay-at-home mom, I was a public school teacher. And I can definitely attest to the anti-God agenda. And and the fact that as believing teachers, we were not allowed to minister the gospel to our students. It was pretty blatantly unacceptable. But but it's also unacceptable by federal mandates uh, not to teach things that are now antithetical to Christianity. And and uh, so I I know there are many good Christian people who are school superintendents and public school teachers and and it can vary in terms of just how sold out to a secular agenda a, a school may be, but uh, increasingly everything's coming in the form of mandates. That means that what's taught in Mississippi, if the federal government's involved and it is, then it's pretty much what's taught in Massachusetts over time. And you know I think one of the things for Christians, by the way, we need to recognize is that going liberal later is not victory. Can you explain that a bit more? Yeah, I mean, I think there's some people who think that conservative means the society, we just negotiate, you know, a situation without recognizing that the world just keeps moving left and even our negotiations then keep moving left. By the way, there was a a very important figure in the British evangelical world, his name was James Orr, and uh, he wrote a book on the Christian view of God and things, God and, and the world. And, you know, he said there, there's a Christian worldview and there's a secular worldview. And he said between the two, there is a deep and radical antagonism. And, you know, people thought he was exaggerating in the late 19th century when he said that. It's a deep and radical antagonism. And uh, I think there are a lot of Christians who just don't want to sense that antagonism coming. In other words, one of these worldviews is going to have supremacy in the culture, and the other one is going to be increasingly marginalized. It's true. And as believers in a very secular world, we're going to find that we're going to be the ones who are marginalized, and we're going to be the ones who are outcast and 
unaccepted and seen as as, as a threat and as a harm mm -hmm. and so that, that that's what's new and by the way this is truly truly new in terms of western civilization and that includes basically uh, going back to the early church. There's something that was present in the Roman concern about Christians that's coming back, and that is that these people are going to do harm to the empire. And so a part of Rome's persecution of Christians was they said these, these Christians are going to do harm to the empire because they won't acknowledge that Caesar is Lord, and, and that's going to weaken the whole patriotism of the empire. And even when Edward Gibbon wrote, uh, you know, in the Enlightenment, his uh, a Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire, he blamed the Christians for the fall of Rome because if, you, if Jesus Christ is Lord, that means that Caesar isn't, and, th and thus allegiance to the empire fell. The empire got weak. Well, you hear very similar things coming now where people are saying, look, we have a common project in this country, and I'm going to speak academically here, but th they style it as an emancipatory program, and that is we're freeing human beings from oppression. Well, guess what one form of oppression is? Christianity. And so it's not just that they see Christianity as outdated. They see Christianity as a threat to what they believe is human emancipation and freedom. And I mean, just look at the whole LGBTQ revolution. It's all in the name of freedom. And, uh, and so now Christians who gave the West uh, by a biblical worldview, the West founding notion of freedom, we're told we're the enemies of freedom. Yeah, and what does that look like for moms? Now that you've painted a picture of the battle that we're in for the souls of our children, how can we arm ourselves for the fight of our lives? Well, a part of it is understanding that uh, the biblical worldview about the human being makes really clear that we are not only a brain, we're a thinking being made in God's image, and we have intuitions, we have impulses, we have emotions, and here's the good news. Moms have the ability, I mean Christian parents, but in particular speaking to, to your godly concern for moms, moms have the opportunity based in Scripture and in the Gospel to help mold not only the thoughts of children, but also their emotions, their intuitions, their instincts. And uh, we need Christian moms doing that monomaniacally uh, because it's going to take that because, you know, it, it really does go back to the fact that what moms invest in implant in their children is always there mm. even if the world seduces them in some sense in the future and and that's going to happen a lot uh, the fact is that there is something there that uh, that is is still absolutely precious and powerful and uh, and I believe that once a, a lot of children or you know when they reach uh, teenage and adult hood. Uh, once they have tried many other things, sadly, some of them, if not many of them, you know, there's something in their heart that not just in their mind, in the knowledge of the things of Christ, there's something in their heart that a mom really has, by the Holy Spirit, the wonderful opportunity to, to put there. You know, when, when the Bible talks about raising our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, it's, those are very interesting words there that are translated. Because when you think of nurture, that means in the warm embrace, in the healthy encouragement, in the provision for and food and home and tucking into bed, the, the, the nurture of the Lord. In other words, when a mom nurtures like that, it's a picture of God's love. Uh, when parents, mom and dad, nurture their children that way, 
it again is it's a picture of God's love for us and those parental metaphors. I mean, God names himself father first and foremost. He never names himself mother, very importantly, but he does, he is described in scripture as as demonstrating a motherly love to Israel uh, in, in the same sense that uh, it's it's very important as a theologian. He he didn't call himself mother. Israel never called him mother. It was everlasting father, or almighty father. But nonetheless, he he shows us that love in in that way that nurture is important. But the other word is admonition, and admonition is a strong word of warning and correction. And that's also a part of a Christian parent's responsibility as a part of what Christian parents do is what a Christian mom does. There is a warning that has to take place constantly. There is a discipline that has to take place constantly because that too is God's character and how he deals with his people, whether Israel or the church. And, uh, and taken into the domestic picture of the home, that's a lot that, uh, that moms are called to do. It is. Yeah. And, and what I'm thinking about as you're sharing is you mentioned how a lot of children as they get into teenage and young adult years might experiment with other world's views and just with the tempting sin that the world offers. And that might not be the time that moms have the greatest influence, probably the least influence on our children. And that really the most influence we have is when they're young. And even though they're, they might be into princesses and toy trucks and it might not seem like there's much at stake at that point from what you're saying we need to be in battle for their lives for their souls by like you said working in their hearts and their minds the love of christ and his word his law so that when they're older and experiencing the world we've created this strong foundation for them in those times when we're not physically with them anymore. It's really sweet. I I just want to bear testimony to my own Christian mom who just went to be with the Lord in February of this year. And um, I just want to honor her for her love for me. I was her firstborn. And um, she was just a wonderful, faithful mom. My wife, Mary, I want to honor her just as such a faithful Christian mom. And, you know, when, when you're a child, you see it. But when you're a husband, you see it in a whole new way. Mm-hmm. Uh, the uh, the absolute uh, non-time restrictive, you know, uh, obsessive faithfulness of a mom, especially with, with really young children, it's the, it's, the, it's the prettiest picture. And now my own daughter, of all things, my daughter's a mother. Um, <laughs> our, our daughter, Katie, married to Riley. They have three children, five and two-year-old boys and a newborn baby girl. And uh, just to give you an anecdote, and I'm sorry, uh, Mary and I are obsessive in love for our grandchildren. Never knew this could be so sweet. Uh, But wonderful Christian parents and a mom who, like you, stays at home with them. And she was a very strategic staffer for the majority leader of the U.S. Senate. And uh, and she quit and defied all the logic of Washington just to be, you know, full-time with those children as soon as Benjamin was coming. And uh, here, here's the thing, and I, I, I won't drone on, but uh, Mary and I live on videos and pictures when we're not with them. And my favorite video right now is of those two little boys, five and two, one on a little bicycle, the other in a scooter, going in circles in a parking lot, singing holy, holy, holy at the top of their lungs. Mm. Do they know what that means? <laughs> the thrice holy God, Isaiah 6, do they, do they know that? No, not yet. But they know that song, and it so shapes the little world they live in 
that when they're riding their bikes and, and scooters in a circle, that's what they're singing at the top of their lungs. And, you know, that's the thing. It, it's, it's always going to be there now. Mm-hmm. I'll tear up if I talk about this long. <laughs> We've been doing family worship in our home and my kids the same way. They're singing What a Friend We Have in Jesus and Holy, Holy, Holy. That's and it, it seems probably laughable from our culture, but our society will not sleep. They will not slumber. And not only is the enemy out to, to get our children, but our culture wants the souls of our children as well. You know, and, what you're speaking there, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but I just did. But what you're speaking there is, is, is an historic Puritan logic. Okay, so let me just share that with you. It's, it's, it's just a part of the logic of the Puritans, which was there's only a limited amount of space in the human heart. So keep filling it with the good stuff to press the bad stuff out. Amen. And, and you know that may that may encourage moms to know that's a part of what you're doing is because they're singing this that means they're not singing something else. Mm-hmm. They're going to sing something, so you provide the soundtrack of their lives as long as you can. Absolutely, yeah. And I really yes, and I want to encourage our moms because again, when our kids are young, I know it's so easy to think that what we're doing isn't a big deal, but this is the time that the Lord gives us to form their hearts and their minds. And I read someone mentioned recently a quote. I don't know if it's true or not that, but that most people die believing whatever they were born believing. And that for a lot of people, even if they have, like you said, those experimenting years or years just living in sin for whatever reason, a lot of people tend to go back to the teaching of their parents. Absolutely. And, and, and uh, we live in that hope, right? And, and, but there's something else just, just, just when I talk about driving into the human heart. So let me go to the other end of life. My mother, who again died in February, mm-hmm. deep in the midst of Alzheimer's. But you know the one thing she could remember? Mm-hmm. The hymns that she had been taught as a little girl. If someone started a tune, she could remember the words. She couldn't remember who I was. Mm-hmm. And uh, there's just something really sweet about that. I'm thankful mm-hmm. that in her heart, she still had those hymns. Absolutely. And I could bet that maybe her mother gave those hymns into her heart when she was a child. No doubt. No doubt. I mean, there, there's even more to it than that, in that she really kind of went back into her childhood world, mm. a, a world that, uh, you know, honestly included dolls and things, very simple things. And I'm so thankful that she had parents who loved her so that when she went back there in her mind, it was a happy place. Absolutely. And that's something knowing for us as parents of young kids now that we can give them that will be their way after we're gone. That's right. What better legacy to leave than, than rich hymns filled with the gospel. So as alumni of Southern, we've been so thankful for and impacted by your high view of the family. You've raised two children of your own, and now you have three grandkids, and you minister to thousands of students every year. In closing, do you have any words of wisdom or encouragement you'd like to share with moms who are seeking to raise their kids with eternity in mind? Oh, I just want to say God bless you. And I don't say that out of mere sentiment, although there's a lot of sentiment in that, especially my own mom and wife and daughter. I mean, my goodness, my heart's full. But uh, I just want to give you a word of encouragement that what you're doing is really the most important work in the world. And I, I know there are poets who have said that, but you know what? They, they didn't understand what they were saying. 
Uh, it really does matter. I mean, we're the God made us in such a way that not one single human can take care of himself or herself for a very, very long time. And I mean, longer than mom, you may want to think. And it is really the most important part of a person's life. And and by the way, there are crucial touch points. So infancy, yes. Oh, my goodness. Easy to see. Young childhood, absolutely. You know, you're you're still pulling everything on and giving them a bath. Then it's a little bit different. It's a little bit different. And parents can misread what comes next. Uh, with early adolescence comes complex analytical thinking. And all of a sudden, parents become so urgently important again. You know, uh, it, you, you look at 11, 12, 13-year-olds. My goodness. You need to be thinking of them as intellectually at a point in which you got to what you were doing when they were three and four and five, you've now got to do it at a different level when they're 11, 12, and 13. Uh, otherwise, you're going to see something very different at 14, 15, 16. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, mom, you're, you're still at it. And by the way, it's never over. I, I've got a, Mary's mother is 90, almost 97 years old. She's still momming. And uh, so it's never over till Jesus comes. Amen. And it is the best job in the world. Thank you so much for your time, Dr. Muller. Well, it's an honor to be with you, and I I just consider it a privilege. And uh, if I can encourage you and other Christian moms, that is a very good use of my day. God bless you. Praise God. Ladies, I hope that this episode was an encouragement to you. The Lord has equipped us with His Word and His Holy Spirit to raise our children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. Let us never underestimate the role that we have in the lives of our children for the sake of their souls and the glory of God. Please join us next week for our final episode of the Miss Teacher Mom podcast. 